Good morning. Sorry, I was taken uh, by surprise there. I was very moved by that song. Thank you, team. That was great. Thank you. Right, we've just completed uh, 40 days of prayer. As you know, we finished on Good Friday. And I don't know how you measure the success, really, of something like that. Um, I suppose I claim only that some of us, at least, prayed a little bit more than we usually do. I did not spend hours and hours on my knees, and I certainly didn't have any boxes to tick. But some of us were intentional about prayer for a time. And out of that came a surprising clarity to me personally. I think my confidence grew regarding where I stand anyway in these days of transition and change when everybody's got an opinion as we strive to take the church forward. But just because I know what God is saying to me doesn't mean we can't have different views. Uh, indeed, what fascinates me about the universal church of Jesus Christ is her diversity uh, as God's people worship and serve in so many different ways. And I've always valued the fact that we are quite a broad church. I think, you know, if um, you only have one view, it condemns you to stay very small, doesn't it? But it's as though God says to us, to me certainly, that you can be free to be yourself in this vast kingdom of heaven. You know, the older I get, the more convinced I am that nobody's got a monopoly on the truth. Didn't God say, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is so far above us and we look around the world and through history and we see many different expressions of the same Christian faith because God, who is higher than us, whose understanding we cannot fathom, is pleased to receive worship in so many different ways. I'm indebted to Gordon for the loan of a book about the Jesus Prayer written by an Anglican bishop and a hermit who came together at Glasshampton Monastery to practice a form of prayer that has spread out of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And they enjoyed what they referred to as a week of glory. They said, in praying the Jesus Prayer, and all it is is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that is all they prayed for a week. They spent hours in silence, in meditation on the word of God, just waiting on God. And this is what they said. We experienced Christ disclosing himself to us in glory through woundedness, in life through death because Brother Raymond was dying. We experience Christ's power in weakness more vividly, closely and clearly than we had ever known. Now this kind of contemplative silent prayer is about a million miles away from our tradition, isn't it? But so what? It happens that I spent the Easter weekend in a cathedral and very, very different but anointed. I believe there is only one truth. One ultimate supreme truth, and he is Jesus, the Messiah. He is the truth, isn't he? Mine, yours, 
Brother Raymond, the Eastern Orthodox, the Nonconformist, the High Church, the Low Church. Jesus is our ultimate truth. Without him, we are not able to worship in spirit and in truth. And with him, we worship in spirit and in truth, but with many different expressions. And I think it's the very diversity of the church that demonstrates that God is way higher than us. So there are denominations and fresh expressions from the church in the cathedral to the church in the pub. Jesus is our shared truth. And I think that's also why these days I'm more relaxed when people move on. We miss them, of course. It really broke my heart a few years ago when some of my closest friends left Junction 10. And it's very easy to say, oh, they just followed the man. No, no, I understood that they needed to be true to themselves. Indeed, it was essential for them. They were following God. The only thing I would say to you as a, pas as a pastor is, don't drift out of church life into nothing. Because fellowship is one of the things that fans into flame the gift of God that's in us. But it is necessary to be true to yourself. doesn't make what somebody else is doing wrong just different. So in our recent 40 days of prayer, I heard God and other people did too. And my meditation seemed to start and finish with a reminder of how high God is, his majesty, his magnificence, the enormity of his vision, uh, the, the big picture, if you like, that we are small but significant members of a body that's very much bigger than us. I started out on day one thinking about how in the Old Testament, Israel had two gifts, the promised land and the law. But that looks like such a small vision compared to the kingdom of heaven since Pentecost because the promised land no longer has defined borders. The kingdom is everywhere. And as for the law, well, righteousness is now a gift to every believer. Didn't Jesus say, you will receive power, all of you, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So I was thinking about the greatness of God, the unimaginable scale of his vision. And this led to the first real act of repentance in my 40-day journey. Because we always use the excuse that our misgivings come from the knowledge of our own human weakness. We say, I believe in God. He can build his church. Nothing is impossible for him. But then it also seems so very humble and good to say, it's myself I don't have any faith in. How very British. And then one day I read this in my utmost. We think his ideals are lofty and they impress us, but really, really we believe he's not in touch with reality, that what he says cannot actually be done. Like the woman at the well who said, he has nothing to draw water and the well is deep. I search within myself and see a deep well of what? Weakness, unbelief, insufficiency. But my reading went on. My misgivings arise from the fact that I search within myself or other people to find out how he will do what he says. My doubts spring from the depths of my own inferiority. And the conviction which the Holy Spirit brings to all of us is that we fail to trust in his abilities. 
The reading went on, the well is deep, and even a great deal deeper than the Samaritan woman knew. We struggle to reach the bottom of our own well, trying to get water for ourselves. And so we prayed this. Lord, the truth is that in looking within myself, ourselves, and finding that I'm lacking, I haven't believed in your abilities. I haven't believed in your almighty power apart from my finite understanding of it. So God said, look up. Focus on who I am and what I can do, not who you are and what you cannot do. Repent. Change your mind. Think of his power, not our lack of it. And then he just kept saying, look up. For 40 days, God was saying to me, look up. Now, a number of people at that time were telling me that they were with me in this. And it was a significant shift in our thinking. Look up. Focus on him. And after being challenged like that, it's really interesting to see, because I've kept a blog, that God gave us a period of rest. And the words uh, from Isaiah rang out one Sunday evening. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak, because that's God. He doesn't always convict. He also comforts and reassures and restores. The good shepherd might well lead us on a journey of repentance, but along the way, he doesn't fail to meet our needs. So we spend some days not asking for anything, but praising God. And it was like a period of rest within the 40 days. Until all of a sudden, we were urged to fight again. And this time, the scripture we were in was Nehemiah chapter 4. And Debbie brought a word. The people were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but there was opposition. They were ridiculed, intimidated, and their strength was giving out. But God said, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And so it says we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. It was a call to fight for our families in prayer and it drew a considerable response. Um, There were some heartfelt prayers at that time because a lot of people have got battles to fight in their own families. In addition, that happened to be the very weekend when Jonathan addressed the church and told us that he was stepping down. So families were on the agenda. But then, of course, the discussions began about what happens next at Junction 10. I was reading now in the book of Acts about the time when Paul got shipwrecked. The ship's owners and crew had ignored advice and set sail in in spite of adverse conditions. And Paul warned them not to, but nobody listened to Paul. And when the storm raged, he had to suffer the consequences along with everybody else. And he did tell them, he said, you should have listened to me. However, it was because of him that none of them lost their lives. God told him, that it was for his sake that they would all survive. So he must pray for them. And through it all, God's purpose was accomplished. Paul said in Acts 27, Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. 
Was there any point then debating about whether God sent the storm or it was their fault they were going through the storm? What mattered was that God would have his way. Now, there have been times in the last few months when church life felt a bit like this, like we were in a shipwreck. Many of you have faithfully prayed and worked on and trusted God, believing, as we do, that God is in control. But, and this is where I really have to be very honest, I know that some have been angry, hurt, wounded. There are those who feel that everything that we've lost has been by the hand of God, that God has stripped away everything that we might have put our confidence in because he wants us to be reliant only on him. There are others who feel that what we fought for has been squandered. And I think a lot of people who think both. But if we're ever going to move forward, we need to do what Paul did on that sheep. He prayed for them. He brought them the word of God. And he kept his eyes on the purposes of God, which were going to happen just as God had said, whatever went wrong along the way. Now, we all know (coughs) that what matters is going forward. The building is down. We currently have no senior leader. Some people have left. Common sense says to me, it is what it is. Get over it. Move on. We've got good, faithful people, more than a remnant, praying hard. God is good. If we've made mistakes, he'll forgive us. He's willing to welcome us with open arms like the prodigal son. And he will have his way. Didn't he make us promises years ago? He will do what he said. I've even preached on this. We've burnt the boats. What choice do we have but to advance and conquer? That's true. But the trouble is, and I'm being honest, I got stuck. I got stuck. I personally have not found it easy to just say, We are where we are. There's no point in going over old ground. And honestly, I have been aggrieved because I felt that nobody had actually said sorry to God or to the church for the things that we'd lost. And it seemed to me, and this got stronger throughout the 40 days, that this was an essential step that we need to take if we are to move on. Anyway, we got to day 25, and I really felt I hit a wall. Apparently, that's something that happens to marathon runners when they get to about uh, 17 or 20 miles, but I wouldn't know anything about that. Um, But I know I felt drained. And on day 26, I wrote down, Lord, grant us a new revelation of Jesus. But this was the time when we started to pray the Jesus prayer. And we spent a few days being still. You know, again, I am amazed as I look back over that 40 days how there was this rhythm, fighting, resting, challenged, comforted, contending, resting again. Uh, Nothing to do with me. We were spirit-led. But I was still hearing God say, look up. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, says Isaiah 40. And we had an interesting discussion about how you do that. 
I wrote that to look up is to imagine God before us, to visualize ourselves standing before God and to visualize God reaching out to, to us. But Neil commented that this is something we don't generally do. In our tradition, we are reluctant to create a kind of mental image of God because we might be creating our own image of God. Well, this was a good point, and it's something that's very real to us. Some traditions, with their use of icons and so on, wouldn't think twice about visualizing God in front of us. But for us, this reluctance is very real. So how do we look beyond ourselves? How do we visualize God? Well, the scriptures definitely tell us that he is to be seen in creation, that the world he has made is his visual aid, if you like, to help us to see him. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So we prayed, Father God, thank you for reaching to us, out to us in creation. So we don't create our own image of you, but we see you in what you have made. And what do we see? We see goodness, don't we? And beauty and glory and power and love. Surely the world out there shows us God, especially in the springtime. And so we were praying that the Lord would help us to be still and to visualize the reality of God moment by moment. And I think creation and the Jesus prayer helped us to be still. It was another period of rest in the rhythm of our 40 days. And then I was still thinking about these words, lift up your eyes, look up. I was still pondering how we can imagine the reality of God when I came to the account of a man who actually saw the glory, as it's recorded in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now it's been said that Ezekiel was a very artistic man, so God gave him a visual experience. Moses had his burning bush, Paul had his experience on the road to Damascus and so on. Ezekiel had this mysterious vision. But these revelations point not only to the reality that God exists, but again to the majesty and the power and the greatness of him. If anything, the visions of heaven that are recorded in the Bible add to our sense of mystery. They don't actually explain that much, but to me, this is a good thing. Because we can become arrogant in our certainties. We can be so sure that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. On day 29, I read this, I was still thinking about the mystery that surrounds God. And I read this, it is perilously possible to make our conceptions of God like molten lead poured into a specially designed mold. And then when it is cold and hard, we fling it at the heads of the religious people who don't agree with us. Read the Bible and you see, uh, in every generation, people who thought they got God all sussed, you know, they had all the answers, they knew for sure what pleased God and what was unacceptable to him. And it seems to me this is the road to dictatorship and we see a lot of it in our world today. 
And if anybody dared to say different, like the Son of God, for example, they flung their hard, cold perceptions at his head. If I could sum up what the 40 days of prayer revealed to me, it's the majesty, the mystery, and the unfathomable love of God, whose thoughts and ways are so much higher than ours. This is surely the road to humility. And faith in the God who is so much greater than us. Nothing is impossible for him, but apart from him, we can do nothing. To acknowledge the mystery sets us free from the endless debate about who's right and who's wrong and whose fault it is and did we cause all this or did God do it. Learn to live with mystery, says God. Worship him. No explanations needed. And then, in our humility... Paradoxically, we hear God. Before the vision, Ezekiel was angry and bitter. He was frustrated. God hadn't done any of the things that he thought he should do. He was 30 years old, so he should have been just starting out now on his priestly ministry. He was born and raised in Judah, trained from birth for the priesthood. But the Babylonians had attacked, and Ezekiel was carried away along with 10,000 other captives. So, perhaps he got stuck. Why, Lord? What's happened to all my expectations? And the answer that he got was this vision of an unfathomable God. High, mysterious, but in control. And then there came revelation. Ezekiel, in his humility, fell down, face down before the God. He couldn't possibly fathom out. And then there came the word of God. The why and the how and the what to do came when Ezekiel was prostrate before the great God who is so much higher than Israel. The mysterious vision has been impossible to draw or paint or fully understand. Ezekiel saw fire and within the fire winged creatures that had each got four faces and wheels that sparkled like diamonds and moved like gyroscope and above that a dome that shimmered like glass and above that a throne of sapphire and above that a figure that looked to be full of fire surrounded by brilliant light. Here was a man to whom every door had been closed, humanly speaking, but nobody was ever going to tell Ezekiel after this that God wasn't real. You know, when I was thinking about the exile, I was reminded of the Christians in Syria and Iraq and Libya. They're never far from our thoughts, are they? Driven out of their homes, their whole lives put on hold, everything they've worked for taken away. Many have lost their lives. And there are no glib explanations. I think glib explanations would be offensive. But how much do they need a vision of the God who reigns far above this earth, whose glory is mystery, whose ways are incomprehensible to us, but who definitely is in control and knows the end from the beginning? Well, that certainly puts our troubles into perspective, doesn't it? But if the awesomeness of God is enough to reassure them, it must reassure us. Now, there's a whole lot more. And there might be a time to share more from the 40 days. But I need to finish with the prayer requests that I shared uh, from day 36. By then, I'd got to Ezekiel chapter 10. 
and he sees the sapphire throne again. And he sees something else, something I couldn't get away from. Verse 18 says, The glory of the Lord departed from the temple. And the message is that the people must repent because they had taken God's presence for granted. It was a defining moment. And my study notes, I use scripture union notes, and on that day it posed certain questions. How have I, how have we treated God? Have we taken his presence for granted? Have we failed to play our part in the relationship? Could he no longer trust us? If so, it went on to say, this is scripture union. The unthinkable can happen and we lose what we had. The temple was not Israel's security. God was. But they had been unfaithful to him like an adulterous wife. They had taken their almighty, righteous, glorious God for granted. Now, if you didn't hear it, I urge you to listen to Joe Clark's message from the 29th of March because he enlarged upon this. But we also need to spend time praying. And perhaps each one of us needs to ask those questions. As we look up and we visualize ourselves standing before God, Lord, have I taken you for granted? Have I failed to play my part in this relationship? Have I become untrustworthy? Two days before Joe preached about Hosea's love for his unfaithful wife, and unknown to Joe, I had read those words. They had been unfaithful to him like an adulterous wife. And since then, I have spent some time on my own with God, since the 40 days finished, really praying about this. And I'll do my best to share it with you. Now, I want to make one thing clear. I believe with all my heart that our church was built on excellent foundations. I'm talking about apostolic foundations, not bricks and mortar. But I just want to share with you what I said to God. And I've challenged the other leaders to confess and even apologize to the people that some mistakes have been made, and we're coming to that. There are things that have happened that have hurt people. And it would be very easy for me to hold up my hand and disclaim responsibility. I'll blame the leadership team. You could do that as well. Blame them. Except that I believe we all have some heart searching to do. And I do believe God is calling us to repentance. So first question, Lord, have I, have we taken your presence for granted? I don't mind sharing it with you. I confess to God that I got very, very comfortable. Did you? I left leadership decisions to other people. Did you? There had been so many past victories, I felt it was all right to relax now. Did you? Perhaps we took his watch over us for granted, but we didn't watch as we should have done. I'm looking back now, and yes, if I'm honest, I do feel that some things have been squandered. But could that have been prevented? The Bible says, 
Be alert, be vigilant. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Could we have been more diligent? Vigilant. Vigilant. I'll get it right, me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on us. Secondly, have I, have we, failed to play our part in the relationship? How often did I fail to practice the rhythms of daily devotions that he taught me? Did you? I know for sure what my spiritual pathway is, the way that God gets through to me. Do you know yours? But have you been elusive, inconsistent, even lukewarm sometimes? I remember how God taught me that my life and my strength are in him. But how often have I, in the words of Isaiah 55, spent money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy have you? Even though we longed for his presence, did we put aside things that got in the way and wholeheartedly seek his face? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on us. Thirdly, did I, did we become untrustworthy? This is very difficult. What are the things that God wants to trust us with? Can he trust us with people that will pray for them and nurture them and protect them and feed them? Can he trust us with his gifts? The Bible says the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So what are we doing with the gifts of the Spirit? Has God given you wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, prophecy, tongues? How do you use it for the common good? Did you fan into flame the gift of God that is in you? And can he trust us like a faithful wife? Or are there any kind of foreign gods that we lust after, like you know, idols like worldly pleasure or the pursuit of an easy life? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on us. Just before I finish, Phil is going to come and speak to us on behalf of the core team. On behalf of the leadership team, I need to speak to you this morning uh, about repentance. So what's the context for me to get up in front of everybody today? Well, over the last 12 months, there's been so much that's gone on in our church. Uh, Jonathan stepping down, uh, the situation with his marriage, knocking down of our building, the apparent slow decision-making of, of the leadership team. I'm here to say this morning on behalf of the leadership team that we're sorry for what people have perceived has or hasn't gone on. I'd like to add that I'm not apologising for what God has done or circumstances. God himself has moved in in some of these situations and in fact some of the key difficult decisions were taken in obedience to hearing from God but I'm here for the upset that as a team we feel responsible for to you at the house of the open door 
some five weeks ago, the team went away to lean on God and to hear as clearly as we could what he was saying to us. One very clear message was that we had to repent as a leadership team for any hurt or offence that we had caused to the body here at Junction 10 through our actions or inactions, what we perceived to have done. I can say that we walked through this last period of time with our hearts open before God and being human, as so many of us are here, not everything that was done or not done was palatable uh, or understood to everybody. But in my own spirit, I'm utterly convinced that this is the right message from the Lord that we received, that it is absolutely right. So here I am, or should I say as a representative of the whole leadership team, to say to you, we're sorry. Do you know, you try at times to get out of situations. Uh, kind of men know that when they're asked to go shopping on Saturday afternoons, don't you men? You try and get out of things. Well, I tried to do the same here, you know. Um, I've only been on the team just over six months and wasn't even party to some of the things that have gone on that I've touched on here. What are they to do with me? But I can tell you that God has convicted my spirit that as a leader, I have to shoulder the responsibility for asking for your forgiveness from the church right now, whether involved at the time or not. Paul says at the start of his letters to Romans, he states he's a slave of Christ to the service he was called to. And so are we as leaders. We're, we're slaves to that service. So church, we are sorry. We're genuinely sorry as we stand before you today. And we are convicted of this by the Lord. And having first sought his forgiveness, we now ask for yours. Please hear that we love you. and We're here to serve you through our callings in the roles that we're in. Could you just pray just for a second? We'll all close our eyes. Lord, we are sorry if we put ourselves or our words or our actions in situations that haven't glorified you or your church here. We ask for your forgiveness, knowing that as our Father, when we truly mean we are sorry, through the convictions you declare to us by the Spirit, that we are forgiven. Lord, let us learn from the situations we've gone through and let us grow, grow closer to you and each other to be the effective, united church you want us to be. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Can we remain with our eyes closed, pray, please? I've been away for a few weeks, so I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. In fact, I didn't know at all what was going to happen this morning. Didn't know Rose was preaching or what she was preaching on, but right at the start of the service, I had a picture in my mind, and I just want to describe this picture to you, so I think it's better if you shut your eyes, because it's going to be descriptive. I had a picture of um, a courtroom on earth, and so your typical old-fashioned courtroom where you've got the judge sitting there, and you've got members of the jury, people who are going to give a verdict, and you've got the person who goes into the dock. And that whole picture of um, being quite um, a cold situation, that furniture that, that people sit on, it's always hard in those old-fashioned courtrooms. It felt cold, it felt judgmental. 
it felt a very difficult environment. That was the one picture that I saw. And then the second picture that I saw, and it was interesting, the rose kept talking about looking up. It was looking up and looking up into heaven, if you like. And what I saw wasn't a courtroom of judgment, but what I saw was a throne room. And I have had this picture before in the past linked to something different, but it came to me again, and it was the throne room. And basically, it was more like it got people seated around an auditorium kind of environment. People from the Old Testament, the New Testament, Christians of the past, etc., just sitting there. And then, Jesus being there, front of the Father, being the advocate for us. And that picture came to me again that I've had personally in the past, but I just felt it was for us today. Where it's almost like, this is what I saw, him holding me again by the hand. And Jesus walking me into that throne room and saying, this is one of mine. And I saw it this morning more as a whole bunch of us, this church, walking into the throne room. And it's all about forgiveness. It's all about Jesus. It's all about focusing on him because without him and the cross and what he did, the debt wouldn't have been paid. So in this throne room, it wasn't a, a, a throne room of judgment at all. It was a throne room of love. It was a throne room of people just looking to Jesus because he's the one. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. And so I just wanted to share that with you this morning because I just sense that we need in whatever we do in our own hearts for it to be within that love, looking at the cross, looking to Jesus and being aware of how he has forgiven us. And that's why he can grab my hand and your hand and all of our hands and walk us into that room and say, this is one of mine, I died for them. Thank you, Phil and Joy. Joe taught us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's a promise from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, hear me, that your soul may live. Ezekiel's vision lifts us to a higher dimension. Look up, says the God, whose thoughts and ways are miles above our petty differences. You remember the story, don't you, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee's prayer was complacent, smug, self-satisfied. The tax collector's prayer is one of humility and honesty and naked faith. It's a desperate appeal. It's a total, reckless turning around in self-humbling and trust. It's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is our way back. This is how we come to God, Jesus said. And people have poured in this way 
rich and poor and sick and sinners and it's only usually the religious who won't come. The ones who think I am righteous, thank you very much. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the way back through Jesus. As one writer said, we can find ourselves brought home through Christ into the arms of the one he called Abba. Let's pray. Father God, we have been challenged in so many ways this morning. We thank you first of all that you are the high and mighty and wonderful God who knows the end from the beginning. And we thank you for that. We thank you that Jesus is indeed our advocate in the throne room of heaven. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, I believe that you are turning us as a church. Perhaps like a big ship, we need time to turn, but you are doing it. And I just pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that you'll turn us around in our thinking. Lord, help us to forgive where we feel resentful or angry in any way. Just help us to forgive. Help us to humble ourselves to one another, Lord, where we have made mistakes, to honestly own to those mistakes. Help us, each one of us, Lord, to come before you and to really think about these questions. Lord, have I in any way failed to play my part in the relationship between us? Help us, Lord, not to go away and forget, but to take that seriously. And Lord, I pray that you'll unite us as a family. Lord, we thank you that whatever's happened, whatever mistakes have been made, however much you have stripped us back, we thank you, Lord, that your promises still stand, that it's all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We believe that. And so we pray, Lord, for unity in this church, for forgiveness for genuine spirit-led repentance on a personal level. Lord, each one of us coming before you and seeking you wholeheartedly. Lord, we need your help, we need your spirit, but we thank you that you promised us your Holy Spirit and you said you would never leave us. And so, Lord, we feel ourselves to be turning you're turning us around, Lord. You're changing our minds about things. And we believe that you're in control. So take us on your way, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.